A new Senate bill, the Medical Devices Cybersecurity Act of 2017, proposes ways for improving the security of medical devices. But there's been voluntary efforts underway by medical device makers and other healthcare industry stakeholders in the last several years to improve the cybersecurity of these products. So, is this new legislation actually needed? Could it help push progress? I'm Marian Kolbesak McGee, executive editor of Information Security Media Group. Today, I'm speaking with Joshua Corman, founder of Grassroots Cyber Safety Advocacy Group. I am the Calvary. And director of the Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Atlantic Council, Josh is also a member of the Department of Health and Human Services Cyber Task Force, which earlier this year issued a report with recommendations for how the healthcare sector can improve its cybersecurity, including suggestions related to medical devices. So now, Josh, the Medical Device Cybersecurity Act of 2017 that was recently introduced by Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut proposes several provisions. Among them are proposals about bolstering remote access protections for medical devices, creating a cyber report card that includes the security capabilities of medical devices. Affirming that medical device makers can issue patches and updates to address vulnerabilities without seeking FDA review, as well as ensuring that these updates and patches are available for free. Do any of these or other provisions of the bill cover any new ground that the healthcare sector isn't already working on? I think the bill caught folks a little flat-footed and confused because there is quite a bit in here that overlaps with what the Food and Drug Administration is already asking for in the pre-market. Guidance and the post-market guidance, both of which are final. That said, I think it's a good thing that we stimulate some discussion. And I did get a chance to speak with Senator Blumenthal's staff about the game theory and some of the the logic behind this. So I think people are reacting to maybe the summary as opposed to some of the decent ideas in here. So in general, we did a year and a half long cybersecurity task force for Congress as part of the Computer Information Sharing Act in, in December of 2015. Our report was issued in June of this year, just after the WannaCry attack took out 65 hospitals in a single day in the UK, and could have done a lot of damage to the US. So, in there, it appears that the team has read some of those reports. In fact, if you look at their one pager, they have summarized and referenced some of the things we call out in our report. So, I think these are good to stimulate some reconciliation and discussion between what the FDA is, has already done. And is already and is currently planning what our task force is asking for. We haven't, as of yet, had hearings、uh, with task force members. The 21 of us. There are six committees of jurisdiction in the House and Senate that can, and we hope, do ask for hearings to help. Because in a lot of cases here, they're not necessarily asking for something new. They're affirming that you don't need to get recertified by the FDA just to issue a security patch. So that's been clarified. Dozens of times by the Food and Drug Administration, it's still a point of contention and confusion between the various stakeholders. There was a time when people thought you couldn't apply a security patch without going through FDA certification. Again, now the FDA has clarified it. There are vendors who don't want to update, so they continue to perpetuate the false belief. And there are hospitals and organizations who don't have the staff to or want to. And there's also biomed services and third parties and maintenance people who don't want to. So I think. The act of putting this in the bill potentially could get some good conversation in public on the record, 
in a hearing or other forum some clarification on things that are already the case. But in general, my instinct was to bring together a summit or a roundtable, maybe in Congress, with key stakeholders on the House and Senate side, with the FDA and with members of the task force, so we can maybe reconcile some of the, the good instincts here and maybe do some finer points on them. So Josh, what other provisions in the bill might need to be reconciled with either suggestions of, of the work group or other efforts that are already underway? A few things pop out, for example, the idea of a cyber report card. I and the Cavalry published a Hippocratic Oath for Connected Medical Devices, uh, basically says all systems fail now that medical devices increasingly play a role in modern healthcare. Here's five ready postures that every device needs for failure. And it's a really intuitive thing, like a five-star crash rating system. It's basically, it has fancy words, but the five things are tell your customers everything you do to avoid failure, tell researchers you'll take help avoiding failure without suing them, how do you capture, study, and learn from failure, how do you have a prompt and agile response to failure, and how do you contain and isolate failure. And it's done in very medical-y language. Underwriters Laboratories also has introduced a cyber assurance program where devices can be compared head-to-head in a way that measures a certain level of security rigor and assurance and asks for things like a software bill of materials, no known vulnerabilities in that, that they're patchable, they run through static and dynamic analysis, through fuzzing and through human pen testing, and they capture all the results. So that private sector thing that's very familiar to the marketplace and also to the insurance industry has an instinctual head start there. And there's some labs being popped up all over the place, including one called Whistle, which is fairly new, and some ISO standards and whatnot. So I do think some discussion about the best way to approach that, what's meaningful to hospital administrators and physicians that may inform apples to apples comparisons could be good. So there's some things there I like. The, the bolting of remote access protections. this is a weak spot that we've talked to the Food and Drug Administration and HHS about in that when we saw the Mirai botnet, is a very large botnet that took out half the internet for a whole day on late October last year. And the reason that was allowed is it was cheap video cameras that had fixed credentials. In other words, default usernames and passwords you couldn't change, and these were unpatchable. So they made this massive botnet. And when I saw that, I went to HHS and I said, you know, most of these large medical devices have hard-coded fixed passwords, and if you if they're not fixed, you, you're not allowed to change them without voiding your maintenance contract. So we have a real exposure that the next MRI botnet could be comprised of medical equipment, including half-million-dollar MRI machines. So I think some sort of look that's really comprehensively worded here could be interesting. And I get the sense from the FDA that now that the post-market guidance was finalized late last year, that they're working on heading into a a revision to the pre-market guidance where they may be able to add things to more specifically avoid fixed credentials or bolster remote access to be done securely. There's other parts in here that I think are a little do need a little bit more discussion about trade-offs. One of the ones you didn't mention is they, they're asking DHS, the Computer Emergency Readiness Team, or CERT. Uh, the ICS, Industrial Controls, CERT at DHS has de facto received uh, inbound bugs also on medical devices. And they've done a decent job, but they have a very fixed resource team, and it's originally focused on industrial controls. And we talk about in our task force report the need to maybe have a med cert or increasing the staff to handle specifically medical device technologies. It has some different sensitivities, different regulatory constraints, different stakeholder groups. So there could be discussion about healthy trade-offs between should this be located in DHS ICS cert for efficiency, should it be met, left in HHS where they, they're closer to the problem space and the responsibility, maybe cert CC. But I think a healthy discussion could happen around that. Josh, what about ransomware and other issues that contribute 
to the cybersecurity of medical devices? Where does that fit into all of this? The bulk of this bill focuses on device security that FDA looks at, but that's not really what's causing most of the ransomware. A lot of this ransomware is actually electronic health record systems, which is ONC. So FDA has no jurisdiction over electronic health record systems. And the Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital ransomware that shut down patient care, diverted ambulances to other facilities and canceled surgeries for about a week. That was a single Java flaw and a single device that affected the electronic health record system. So if we really want to take a bite out of the ransomware issues, we're going to have to look not just at FDA's jurisdiction, but also um, other parts of HHS. I think it's a good idea. I think it was done in a hurry before recess in, in the hopes that maybe this morsel of legislation could be put into amendments on other bills. But I found a, a willingness and, and an open-mindedness to, to maybe engage and compare notes, both with work that I and the Cavalry has done on things like the Hippocratic Oath, some free market stuff like the Underwriters Laboratories CAP program, and also maybe comparing notes with some of the task force members, if not all of us, because we did significant work on these things and we have some pretty good ideas that might be able to help. If there's one area I'd like to suggest that we add to scope, if there's an appetite for it, it's that the devices are actually on a pretty good trajectory between some of the great work Suzanne Schwartz and CDRH have done at FDA. Between the pre-market guidance, post-market guidance, and some of the appetite they have for our recommendations from the task force report, I think the devices are in decent shape. What's been missing is what are the incentives and the staffing for the hospitals? I think you recall one of the most disturbing findings from our task force report on the thermometer graphic was that the overwhelming majority of health delivery organizations in the U.S. lack a single qualified security person on staff. And we don't even have an accurate census of which they are, but based on guesses about the number of small, medium, and rural facilities that are 20 employees or less or 10 employees or less, they simply don't have any security people. And when they think that they're cash-strapped and they don't have any money to buy better devices, one of their task force members said, I can't pry my old technology out of your cold, dead hands, Michael McNeil from Phillips. And even if we get better devices through this bill, it from inception to delivery to market, it takes about six years to have a, a new device come to market. So a lot of the fruits of what Suzanne Schwartz and CDRH have done are really not going to hit the market until about 2021. And as they do, we want to make sure that there's an accurate census of do we have enough qualified security professionals in these hospital clinical environments? Are they conditioned to buy safer products than less safe products? If you have two infusion pumps, are you buying the one that's patchable versus not patchable? the one that has a disclosure program versus doesn't. And those kind of things like the Hippocratic Oath or some sort of five-star rating system may make better use of the limited resources, but also I think having an accurate census of how understaffed are we. I said a very controversial thing in the course of the, the report delivery, which is when hospitals say they have no money to buy new devices or hire new security staff. I said that maybe we can't afford to protect everything. I think the line was, if you can't afford to protect it, then you can't afford to connect it. And maybe a softer way to put that is you know, channeling Stanley from Marvel Comics, like with great power comes great responsibility. Maybe it's with great connectivity comes great responsibility. And it's one thing for the device manufacturers and the FDA to do their part to raise the, the available hygiene of these devices. But we also, if we really want to make these clinical environments safer, we also have to look at the real dearth of security talent, the real lack of incentives to drain the swamp of really obsolete, unsupported, hard to defend and very brittle security on a lot of the legacy technology. Because things like WannaCry that took out 65 hospitals in a single day, you know, we don't have years remaining before we see more of those. We may see another one this month. Uh, Not Petya also hit some, some hospitals and some critical infrastructure. So 
if we expect to see the new normal is one massive scale internet worm per month, and we know that we have material weaknesses in our hospital and clinical environments, I like this bill. I'd like to make sure we do the really smart 80-20 rule things. The way we put it was uh, after 9-11, we, we couldn't do everything to replace the entire fleet of airplanes that might get hijacked, but we did a really smart simple thing in that we reinforced the cockpit doors. You know, the steel reinforced cockpit door maneuver was a really elegant, small change to improve legacy investment that had maximum benefit for keeping people out of the cockpit. One of those here, and I'd love to see a discussion around this bill that says, how do we turn this into an education awareness that you are in fact allowed to patch? And if you don't patch, you'll actually get a safety communication or a recall, according to the postmarket guidance, that these things aren't voluntary, like many people believe the FDA guidance is voluntary, but the law beneath it is mandatory. So they always refer to this as the guidelines are their most current interpretation of how to be in compliance with the law from the Food and Drug Administration Act. So a lot of people use that hand-waving or play up that ambiguity to say that this guidance isn't binding. And while the document up top says that, what they're really getting at, and if you ask them, and they've clarified this dozens of times in front of me, is that we expect you to be in accordance with the mandatory DA law. Here is how we are currently going to interpret that law based on the fact that technology changes pretty quickly. So you can do it in a different way to meet the law, but you're going to have to be able to explain why you've done it in a different or superior way. So I think I'd rather treat this bill as a chance to clarify on the record uh, some facts and fiction, maybe add a little scope so we're not just looking at medical devices but EHRs, and also look at the real bottleneck here, which is the, the, the real dearth of security talent who's able to act upon these security threats, buy the right devices, deploy them securely, et cetera. Josh, in terms of medical devices and the cybersecurity issues that are faced in that area, what's going on in terms of IoT and some of the similar challenges that are faced by those products? People probably have not noticed this, but on August 1st, Senator Warner, uh, also from the Senate, put out a bill for IoT hygiene, the Internet of Things Cybersecurity Improvement Act of 2017. It essentially uses the federal procurement power to say anything still to the federal government that's considered IoT or connected devices must have the following minimum cyber hygiene. And when you think about that, it's coarsely defined enough that that could include vehicles sold to DHS Border Patrol or medical equipment and electronic health records sold to Veterans Affairs or the Department of Defense's medical needs. And that asks for things similar to the cyber assurance program at UL. It wants a software bill of materials. It wants there to be no known vulnerabilities in there, which this bill specifically called out. A single device had 1,400 known vulnerabilities in it. Number three, they want the devices patchable. Number four, they don't want any fixed credentials, which speaks to maybe Blumenthal's desire to bolster uh, remote access security. It wants you to use standard ports and protocols and crypto so that you're not doing cutesy things that might endanger federal government. And it wants coordinated disclosure programs inviting third-party researchers to hack your products without fear of legal reprisal, and it wants safe harbor for those. And it even comes up with a NIST project to say if anyone can't meet these minimum hygiene things, NIST should come up with compensating controls that are acceptable alternatives to devices that are too small or too cheap to meet those needs. So I think some reconciliation may be very prudent, and it may actually strengthen and bolster either bill they're looked at in concert. For my part, I'm going to do a very thorough review 
of the bill as worded. Now that I've talked to the staffer, I think they're willing and uh, eager to take uh, value-added comments and maybe refactor this. And I hope they do so as well with the Food and Drug Administration, because I think there's some healthy discussions to be had about how to implement some of these ideas, which ones should be changing the law versus simply clarifying or communicating what the law already says. But I can't think of a more important thing. I mean, healthcare is one-sixth of our economy. It's a life and death thing. It's part of national critical infrastructure. And we're seeing increased adversary activity, both accidents and adversaries, focusing ransomware and denial of service on patient care. And we're simply not prepared for it. Just before DEF CON in June, we did the first ever clinical hacking simulation between I and the Cavalry, University of Arizona, and Atlantic Council, where we did a disaster recovery kind of a critical simulation where we did three ER simulations of three different hack devices with real physicians to see if they would notice how they respond. And it was very dramatic. ABC Nightline did a nine-minute segment on it. And on day two, we did disaster recovery plan to say, if you took out a single hospital in Phoenix, what would happen? What would the response look like? If you took out plural hospitals, where did the fractures start and people start getting really hurt? And both of those exercises were incredibly eye-opening. It was called the CyberMed Summit. And we hope to turn that into a 50-state initiative with each governor to pick and highlight just how under-trained and underprepared we are. And if we want this bill to have some impact on national security, public safety, and the confidence of the public in the healthcare sector, I think there's some low-hanging fruit that could be woven in here. And instead of being redundant on things that are well covered, we could add some much needed love and attention to things that aren't yet. Josh, one last question briefly. With Congress so divided these days, what's the likelihood that this bill by Blumenthal has legs, whether it's a standalone bill or weaved into other legislation? It's always hard to tell. There's different ways bills become law, right? I think part of their theory here was if this was written up in legislative language, then it could potentially be attached as an amendment to some of the other things that happened before recess that didn't happen. It could be its own bill. It could be combined with an Appropriations Act. It could be maybe merged with some of the Warner things. So I think it's good to have legislative language ready when you might need it or see a vehicle to attach to. I think now that that time has passed, the other trigger could be that if there is a high-profile, large-scale attack on U.S. hospitals, sometimes having language ready to go, you see a political appetite. My focus on cyber safety has not really been a partisan issue. Other things like you know economic aspects of healthcare or those can get very partisan, but the safety aspects here, especially narrowly defined ones that are technically grounded, there's, there's more of an appetite to do things like that. And were there a big attack, having some vetted, well-discussed language could be very good. I think that's the stage we have to do now, is combine the best wisdom of the very intense year-and-a-half-long task force report, the best current thinking of the FDA and other parts of HHS that go beyond just the medical devices. Like I said, ransomware is mostly enabled by EHRs, which is outside the scope of FDA, so we'd want to fix that here. And also maybe what we hasn't really been brought to bear yet much is the things like joint commission and the role of hospitals, because these hospitals in many ways are victims and targets, so we don't want to place the blame on them for being impoverished and understaffed. The economics don't really support that well, and we can't give it a pass because the you know this is a public safety national security issue, and we're dangerously underprepared. So without laying blame at anyone's feet, We need to get very creative about using the the market forces and the regulators to positively cause behavior change instead of thrusting more requirements and burden on people without a clear-eyed way of doing it in a way that preserves the promise of connected medicine without exposing us to the peril. 
Thanks, Josh. I've been speaking to Josh Corman. I'm Marianne Kolbesak-McGee of Information Security Media Group. Thanks for listening.